Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Ella Whelan. Last week, Rob Lyons and the team looked back on a year in sport. This week, we'll continue to keep Brexit to one side and get to grips with the other big political moments in the year. Never far from the headlines, US President Donald Trump has had another rocky year with growing panic about the far right in America. Over in Europe, populist upsurges have been taking place at the ballot box and out on the street. As we speak today, the Gilets jaunes are still protesting in France. In other news, there was the Brett Kavanaugh trial, which saw the hashtag MeToo movement reinvigorated. Back in the UK, though the debate about sexual harassment continues, feminists have had their hands full with a different kind of row. Trans activists and so-called TERFs have been warring over a proposed change to the Gender Recognition Act, which could make it easier to legally change genders. And as always, free speech has been a big issue in 2018. Certain words have been deemed too offensive for public debate, with Peter calling for a clampdown on meat-related vocab, women was changed to WIMXN by the Wellcome Trust in the name of inclusivity, and Twitter has tightened its regulations to prevent dead naming, hate speech, and generally unpleasant language. From speakers being banned on university campuses to the no-platforming of Steve Bannon by prominent British commentators, censorship is an ever-present problem. But let's go back and take a look at a year in populist revolt. From the second year of Donald Trump to the protests of the Gilets jaunes in France, I'm joined by the Academy of Ideas Director of Membership and Events, Jeff Kidder, and Partnerships Manager, Jacob Reynolds. Well, Jeff, let's start with you. This is Trump's second year in office. Uh, Has he become the far-right fascist threat that some people have made him out to be? No, I don't think that's happened. There's been a lot of noise, background noise continuing around uh, Trump over the Russian collusion, over various his tweets, all kinds of things. On a sober analysis, he's obviously done quite badly in the midterm elections, which shows that there isn't this inexorable rise of uh, of him and his ideas. And I think particularly the thing... If you were Trump, the thing you'd be pleased to have done this year is to get uh, another nomination on the Supreme Court in Brett Kavanaugh. So even though there was all the fuss about it and people complaining about Kavanaugh and protests and all the rest of it, at the end of the day, he has changed the balance uh, through his actions of the Supreme Court, which over a period of time, it's yet to be seen what will happen, could make America more socially uh, conservative through the Supreme Court as the court has has so many powers. So that's a significant uh, event that's happened probably and in many ways has been overlooked in the noise surrounding uh, a whole number of other issues which in many ways are far less important. And Jacob, if you went by the newspapers and much of the media in America, it would seem like Trump was losing, but yet he still manages to keep going. What's going on with that disjunct between kind of the New York Times, uh, you know, constantly talking about him as a far right fascist threat, uh, and yet people still really seem to support him? For Trump, he lives and breathes off negative media coverage, and that part of his appeal rests on being able to present himself as a sort of populist uh, attack on the uh, liberal establishment and so as much noise as you get in the in the sort of vaguely liberal or left press in the states uh, all that does is sort of feed trump's uh major narrative in in essence however it it does speak to the serious weakness of the left or the, the liberal center in america that they can't really come up with a coherent line that seems to have any purchase with most people who might 
vote Trump. Uh, the fact that there's some dodgy dealings with Russia, or that Trump is a nasty person, or that he like has some occasionally racist views. That's all pretty well known and doesn't seem to really resonate with a lot of people in America. And so as much as you can focus on those issues, there's a real gap in exploiting sort of politically and finding a new opening for the left in America. The most amazing thing for me is on the Democrat side, they did quite well in the midterm elections. But in many ways, they still seem to be fighting the last presidential election. And it's not clear. I mean, now they've just begun to start talking about the next presidential election. But... The idea that, you know, they need to try to get a program together, which they're finding very difficult. They need to have some credible candidates who can take on Trump and what he represents. But it's it's just too much of this personal insulting, nothing constructive. And so it's not at all impossible that despite Trump's many failings and despite his ideas, which I uh, detest in many ways, and despite his many personal and other failings, it's still possible that he could win the next election because the opposition are so behind in getting any anything kind of coherent together. On, on that, it's very uh, relevant that people still, um, in some circles, talk about some sort of Clinton running again, um, and that the major the major candidate of change on the left still seems to be Bernie Sanders, who just gets older and older. N- n- not not that some of his policies wouldn't do some good in America, but there's there obviously is some new blood that came into the Democratic Party in the midterms, and there's some potential there for new candidates to emerge. But really, it's a conversation that should have started happening immediately after the presidential election and is taking far too long for the Democrats to really get their head around. Well, as much as Trump is called the kind of far-right threat in America, there have been discussions here in Britain and across Europe about the possibility of a far-right spreading across Europe. Um, We all know about people labelling Brexit far-right, but also recent elections in Spain, uh, in Germany, the kind of political parties that have come to power in Italy have given rise to the idea that there is uh, a populist revolt in Europe. And when you see the words populist revolt, read far-right revolt. I think that's kind of how it's characterised. Jacob, what is going on? Is the far-right on the march across Europe? People like uh, Matthew Goodwin and others talk about how blessed we have been in the UK to have had Brexit. because it provided a channel for popular discontent with the status quo to sort of emerge um, in a relatively orderly fashion. Well, obviously, uh, all bets are off if Brexit is betrayed. But at at least in that respect, there's been a general discontent with the sort of post-financial crisis settlement throughout every developed economy in the world. And it's it's entirely normal and very desirable that we would see after no real changes and no sort of recognition by the political and media and economic establishment that something quite drastic needs to change in the way that our developed economies are managed. It's quite natural that we would see pretty substantial discontent. And so long as the uh, the left refuse to sort of really champion that discontent or find some coherent form for it, uh, it, it then the nat- then it will always just sort of be something that the right can make uh, hay of. And so the e- even if populism at the moment does have a sort of slightly right of centre or even far right character, I think that speaks as much to the failing of the of the left to really champion that discontent rather than any sort of intrinsic uh, underlying desire for fascism or something on behalf of ordinary people. A couple of years ago, people noted Brexit. They noted a couple of other events that had happened. And I think this year it's become much clearer to more people, that there's just a disconnect almost across the inter- certainly Western Europe and Southern Europe and possibly moving into Eastern Europe. There's a disconnect between the people in power 
and the rest of the population. And it takes many forms. I mean, if you look in recent weeks at the Gilets Jaunes, you see what happens in France and the level of anger and protest. But the fact that almost spontaneously, people in many other countries, particularly in Western Europe, are now wearing the yellow jackets and identifying with that. There's a, a, a common view held by people in different countries against the establishment. So you have that in relation to France. You have a situation last week where Theresa May goes to Brussels as kind of supplicant begging these people who are running the European Union to give her a bit, a few more crumbs off the table, which is a, a, a different form of the same sort of thing. So whether it's the national governments in some countries or the European Union in its bastions in Brussels and Strasbourg, there's a very clear disconnect to many people between the people who run Europe, their value systems, if you like, the what they believe in, and the lives of ordinary people who in many ways, feel that they're getting poorer and certainly more and more neglected. And uh, that's a, a very strong development that's continued this year. Sticking with the Gilets jaunes, Jeff, I mean, some people originally, when it first started out, characterised it as a kind of just a uh, like petty bourgeois reaction against something small like fuel taxes. And obviously there was talk about the fact that the Front National had been spurring on some of the protesters and that had led to some of the violence. Seems to have grown to be bigger than that. I mean, how positive are you about particularly that kind of movement? Well, I think it's it's mixed. I think to many people, because Macron won the presidency a couple of years ago with a uh, a strong mandate, there was a sense that this went against the populist tide. But in fact, you know, Macron beat Marine Le Pen, who most people detest and I detest. Uh, and you could understand why he won that. But that doesn't mean that the underlying discontent that was there under President Hollande hasn't deepened under Macron, who appears even more aloof or considerably more aloof than, than Hollande ever was. And so I, I, I think, yes, the, the trigger is the taxes and the sense that the people in power have these ideas about green taxes and whatever, which are very important to them. But to ordinary people, they just mean austerity and more poverty. And there's a big disconnect there. And that's the thing that triggered it. And elsewhere, it could be triggered by, uh, you know, a a number of other things. Jacob, do you think there has been a significant shift this year or in the last couple of years in which politics and business as usual, that kind of Tina politics of having... Uh, Eurocrats or technocrats in power giving their sort of orders from on high is shifting or there isn't space for that anymore with people kind of being more switched on in relation to and willing to pour out onto the streets and protest against that kind of way of doing politics with Brexit and uh, other things in other countries. It's it's increasingly clear that it seems or at least I'd hope that that kind of politics as usual or there is no alternative that 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 can't continue and there's very little uh, desire for it to continue and people do want to see something different however so long as the response to that remains as people as sort of incohate as people just moving onto the streets which is positive and it's lots of what's happening around the Gilets Jaunes and some of the sort of spontaneous organisations happening around there should be uh, certainly looked on with interest and in some cases applauded but as long as it remains slightly disorganised, without any clear political narrative, with a sort of reluctance to nominate leaders or entrust them with power, it's going to be very difficult to actually challenge that desire for something different into something lasting and that will actually create a sort of meaningful change that people can feel. Well, I think these developments will continue. I think even where things are dissipate and are defeated, 
well, Brexit itself is very important. I mean, I know we're discuss, discussing this elsewhere, but what happens with that? Because that was a, a an event where a large number of people, the majority of people who voted in, in the UK, uh, very clearly voted for a particular result and have that enacted. And if anything goes with that, that'll be a major issue. But from the elections in Italy this year, there are elections in Greece next year, there'll be elections in other places where protests will come up, people will demand that their voices are heard. I think the fact that people are increasingly demanding that their voices are, are heard and that they're not just treated as a, a, a as an irrelevance because they don't check, share Macron's environmental uh, insight, that therefore they're, they're saying, you can't ignore us. We, we want uh, a voice and we want to be heard and this is, this is what we think on these issues. The fact that that's happened this year in France and to an extent in other places... Uh, is very positive, and I think that hopefully will continue uh, as a precedent into 2019 and beyond. Now, though the Me Too movement broke in late summer of last year, it has continued to dominate much of political discussion, whether it's accusations of misconduct or calls for more regulation on how the sexes interact, feminism is never far from the front pages, or our minds. At the Battle of Ideas Festival, there were five debates on feminism. What is the point of feminism, the F word? We're going to be talking about the gender pay gap, myth or reality of Me Too, and whether or not it has killed the office romance. Thanks all for coming um, to this debate on UK's rape laws, and whether they need reform, whether they become too politicised. What is a woman anyway? So we have been talking about this all year, and with me to look back on this F word is Claire Fox, the director at the Academy of Ideas and partnerships manager Jacob Reynolds is staying on. Now, Claire, let's start with you. There's a lot to talk about in relation to feminism in 2018, but perhaps we could start off with the discussion that happened around September this year of making misogyny a hate crime, which lots of MPs do support. And there's a possibility of it coming into law next year. What do you make of that? It's interesting how whatever about feminism being everywhere the word misogyny, which was very rarely used, has suddenly become a kind of everyday discussion, which is in a very extreme uh, way of expressing maybe sexism or some backward attitudes towards women. Misogyny is hatred of women, and yet somehow this is kind of deemed to be quite a normal state of affairs in British politics. And I think that in and of itself is telling that it, there's been a kind of ratcheting up of the idea that women are at the receiving end of hate and abuse and violence. And I'm afraid that this um, uh, new proposed legal change is actually very worrying from my point of view because it's inevitably going to have a, a negative impact in terms of civil liberties. I'm frightened about people who are going to be prosecuted under it. If you actually look at what the law is modelled on, based on the Nottingham Police uh, model, and in their view um, of, of what misogyny is, you know, it includes sexual assault and, and, and indecent exposure, but suddenly it becomes groping, taking unwanted photos. I've got no idea what that is. And by the way, groping is a very broad term as well. It could be anything. Online abuse whistling, uh, sexually explicit language. And even Stella Creasy, the MP that's pushing this, is calling for an increase in sentencing. So you have longer in jail if it can be proven that certain types of acts were driven by, or in fact, some kind of mitigating circumstance was the fact that it was committed by a man against a woman. Now, I'm a liberal and a civil libertarian, and I do not think that we should be locking people up or trying to criminalise what are actually sometimes 
innocent, but even if not innocent, messy instances of interactions where sometimes men behave badly. And I certainly don't think it's misogyny. Well, Jacob, the hashtag MeToo movement seems to have had a real lasting effect in relation to legal changes, but also in relation to how people relate to each other, lots of people say they're now nervous about uh, being in confined spaces together in the office because of the fear of accusation. Uh, young guys saying they don't know how to act around women, young women saying they're afraid of guys. Uh, how do you feel about all of this? Un- underlying it is something similar to what Claire was mentioning with regards to the word misogyny, right? The, we've heard a lot for a long time about uh, violence or sexism, and I think people's lived reality doesn't really match up with that. And so you... And so those words lose their purchase, like sexism. So you have to resort to a new word like misogyny that has a stronger connotation. And soon the sort of political uh, substance of those words will be emptied out as well. And I think there's a similar thing going on with regards to sort of unscripted relations between the sexes. People's normal, ordinary vocabulary that they would have used to express a disappointing date, slightly uh, over-eager man in a bar or anything like that, the, that, that vocabulary isn't as, as accessible to people as it maybe once was. And so people are finding it harder and harder to navigate these ordinary interactions. And that's to the detriment of of both sexes. There was a... While my heart doesn't exactly bleed for people who work at Goldman Sachs, there was a story about people in banks finding it hard to have mentoring opportunities because men are slightly concerned about being in like sort of alone with women or going on business trips with women. And it speaks to a, a, a broader problem, which is that the sort of criminalization or the sort of at least putting a dark cloud over most unscripted interactions between men and women is fine. It's making it hard for both men and women to appreciate all of the opportunities provided by unscripted interaction. And like ev- everybody that's roughly my age, all one of the, Top topics of conversation is how it's like you can't meet anyone anymore. People have lost that ability to just have relatively normal interactions outside of the scripted interactions of Tinder or of people you might know on Twitter or something like that. The, the, that's the real nub of it is that that the ordinary way that people you would interact with people you make friends you might meet prospective girlfriends or lovers or whatever people are finding it harder and harder to do that and that's the thing that really concerns me and that's been reflected in studies one of the big studies that came out this year by the british pregnancy advisory service showed that uh, millennials which i guess are people of mine and your age uh perhaps a bit younger in their early 20s are just not having sexual interactions are not going out and meeting each other not starting relationships not even having sex until very late on uh so this is having a very real effect. Claire, especially for young women, what does this kind of atmosphere spell? I mean, it's not, not exactly a, an empowering message to say that sex is a real danger rather than something to be enjoyed. I'm certainly not young or millennial, so this is an observation from afar. But I think that um, you can sort of see a kind of anxiety about kind of the interactions between the sexes. And I was talking to somebody the other day who was saying that their son at university, you know, kind of going out and having this liberating time at university is kind of like terrified to chat anyone up or, you know what I mean? It's like sort of, and they were regretting. So it's like, I don't want to be the kind of parent that says, go and sleep around, but I'm actually more nervous about the fact that he's so nervous. And this might be an imagination. I mean, it's not as though you're going to get accused falsely every time you chat somebody up, but there is a kind of me too that's used as a joke, by the way, because, you know, somebody kind of touches one's arm now by accident. They'll say, oh, I don't want that to be a me too moment. There's a jokey bit of it, but there is also a kind of serious, oh God, you know, I'm not, I don't want my actions to be misinterpreted. So there's a sense in which people are fearful that their actions will be seen through the prism of sexual assault. And, and, and I think that's rather horrible. For young women, 
absolutely hopeless. I mean, what chances there of experimenting, having fun, uh, encountering uh, excitement if... You know, people you might want to have sexual relations with are frightened of you. Or if you yourself are nervous or see every kind of approach through a rather negative prism. Stella Creasy said that she wanted to change the law to send a message to young women that we're on your side. And I think as well that there is something about kind of the political class seeing themselves as like wanting to play the Me Too movement, to kind of talk to young women in particular, and say, we are feminists as well. And I actually think that that is a wrong use of the law to send messages. But I actually think the message you're sending is, you are a victim, we'll help you, we'll use the law on your side. And I actually think in that way it's disempowering for women as well. Me Too wasn't the only point that feminists were talking about this year. In fact, actually they've been spending most of their time seemingly arguing amongst themselves with the row between uh, feminists who support trans activists and their calls that trans women are women. Then on the other side, uh, there are the, of an older generation, usually radical feminists who are called TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists. And they've been rowing over the Gender Recognition Act, which the government held a consultation on this year to see whether or not we should change the law to make it a lot easier for trans individuals to change gender so rather than having to have a consultation a medical consultation uh, there is something called self-id which is simply saying i am a woman which would then be legally recognizable claire there seems to be a really ugly war between turfs on the one hand as they're called and trans activists on the other side and feminism largely seems to be pulled apart by this what has been going on this year we have to take a step back and remember that who introduced the notion of um, self-ID and the whole Gender Recognition Act was the Conservative Party. I mean, it's extraordinary that a Conservative Party would open up this can of worms, and it really is a can of worms. I, I have a lot of sympathy with TERFs in this argument, uh, which is a terrible phrase, because I think that um, self-defined gender is an absolute nonsense I'm not by any stretch of imagination somebody who self-identifies as a feminist even but even I've started thinking look I'm a woman get over it I mean what are you you know I don't want this to be like a a a matter of choice in that straightforward way and you do feel like saying as a woman do you know what we women have gone through because you're just so irritated by people who have self-defined saying I am equally a woman and I understand everything you've been through however that is an emotional response because when I actually look now at the way that the, the, the kind of war is opened up, also in order to kind of argue against the Gender Recognition Act, many feminists have effectively said this is almost implied this is a conspiracy by men to dress as women in order that they might assault women. So we've ended up in this position where and I think it's uh, wrong that of course that people who self-identify, people like Ian Huntley of all people are man who murdered and raped two young children now wants to self-identify as a woman and might end up in a women's prison. I understand that is a wrong idea. But the idea that everybody's doing this consciously, no, I don't think that's what's driving this. If anything, I think that we want to be wary of something which now turns this into an anti-men. I mean, it ends up going back to our Me Too discussion, all men are violent. Men only want to relate to women as a, 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 in a violent way. I think that there is a major, interesting, fascinating discussion to be had about why so many young men want to identify as women. 
why so many young women want to identify as men, why gender recognition, gender dysphoria has become so mainstreamed in schools amongst teenagers. That seems to me to present an existential crisis of identity in society. And we're avoiding that because we're ending up just talking about the intricacies of the law or this feminist civil war. What was we should be critical of the Gender Recognition Act because it makes a mockery of everybody's experience of daily reality. It, it is important that we should fight that fight on a sort of liberal and progressive basis. And that means not resorting to the odd story where somebody has gamed the law for advantage, as Claire said. But also this debate is fought almost entirely on psychological terms of the damage that either being recognised or not being recognised as a trans person does to people or young people or whatever. And I'm wary of just purely having a very sort of deterministic, scientistic uh, argument about what trans means or what being a woman means i'd rather we had a more sort of humanist universalist understanding that was much more grounded in how we want to relate to each other and what kind of uh, lives we want to lead and what norms we want to regulate our sexual interactions now moving on to our final topic free speech a concept central to our work at the academy of ideas the battle of ideas has the slogan free speech allowed is under threat and it sometimes feel like we're living in a less free society than ever with bans on speakers happening regularly calls to silence disagreeable words becoming the norm and anyone who defends freedom of speech being rather unfortunately labeled alt-right claire fox is still with us and she's joined by the academy of ideas associate director alistair donald Alistair, can we start with you because the issue of censorship is always a difficult one because you have lots of people saying it just isn't a problem it just isn't happening it's this kind of overcooked idea by people on the right uh, who want to panic about free speech but is it a problem yeah i mean i think it's been a, a very notable uh, development this year that lots more people seem to be arguing that it isn't a problem but i think you just you know you just need to look out there in the real world and 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 um you see i i think a fairly dramatic expansion of of the constraints that we face on freedom i mean it seems to have gone from conversation that often revolved around what was happening in universities to a much wider issue right th- right the way throughout society where um lifestyle uh, is con- Constantly, the subject of, of uh, interventions in, in terms of what we can do. There's even a discussion uh, bubbled up over the last couple of weeks on advertising and, and what sort of uh, uh, people and actions can be uh, shown within adverts. There's the whole furore around social media and especially uh, on something like Twitter where there's uh, been hate speech rules introduced and people are actually losing their, their, their Twitter accounts. There's a, still a discussion around the press and how free that should be with rather worryingly the Labour Party looking like if it got elected it would want to introduce further restrictions. So I just think that to say uh, that there's not these problems is to close our eyes and one of the biggest problems with it seems to be the evacuation of the left in terms of defending free speech which has really uh, led to this situation uh, where it is the right that now claim to be to have the mantle of the defenders of free speech. One thing that happened this year was that my uh, second edition of my book came out very exciting plug which is called I Still Find That Offensive and when I was writing the new introduction I was thinking about what had happened in the free speech wars and I think Alistair's just said something it's very important that I think we can't stress enough which is there's been a systematic attempt this year to delegitimize the fight for free speech I mean remarkable it's come from quite a lot of people on the left in progressive circles, which is the very 
act of arguing for free speech is seen to be somehow a cover for the alt-right or white supremacy or for punching down and that what you really want is kind of the power to be racist and bigoted. And this is, I mean, I kept track of the number of articles coming from well-known figures who effectively argue this, that... And, and, and it casts a kind of suspicious eye now, which is that I've noticed that people say to me, well, why are you so obsessed with free speech? This must mean that you are in cahoots with, um, you know, kind of some somebody dodgy. So that that's an important thing to note, I think. Warwick a Student uh, Society, Politics and Philosophy and Law Society this weekend, they basically had a survey saying, is gender binary or on a spectrum? It was a survey with a question. And that survey was taken down by the student union on the basis that it was dangerous and so on. I thought that just the fact that there are certain issues, and we know that the kind of whole gender trans issue is one of those ones we've already talked about, that you just cannot even ask a question on. And the student union response was, some topics are not up for debate. And that's the way it's often said. You can't discuss that. So for those people who say this isn't an issue, I just remind them that this kind of eats in all into everything all the time. The other interesting thing that's happened in the last couple of weeks is is the Dr. Noah Carl situation. Who so Noah Carl is 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 a young academic who's uh, done some research that's attracted a certain amount of controversy around it and has been subject of an open letter uh, from various academics throughout the UK and, and more broadly. Our that he should no longer have a job. Uh, so, I mean, just a couple of interesting things about that, I think. First of all, the uh, the way that open letters these days, which one might, might associate with quite a sort of progressive uh, uh, ambition of, of in, in the past, often to try and gain more freedom, are these days being more and more used as a means of shutting down uh, people's freedom. And, and secondly, that, that uh, uh, what has become incredibly common over, over, over recent times is, is that often it's about attacking people's job and people's ability to have employment. I mean, how disgusting really is, is that? People are uh, trying to get people sacked because of their, their, their views. I mean, this is the stuff that uh, anybody who argued for freedom has, has always, you know, historically has, has been absolutely against. Well, one of the big examples of that this year, which I'm most shocked about, can't get over it, is what's happened to Ian Baruma, who is the you know major public intellectual is appointed as the editor of the New York uh, Review of Books and considered to be a kind of breath of fresh air. He's a, 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 an intellectual I've admired for many years. I don't always agree with. But what his uh, crime was, um, was that he actually commissioned an article, a, a piece, by somebody who'd been accused of uh, sexual assault in the past, went to court and then was found not guilty, but whose reputation was destroyed in the Me Too wake. And undoubtedly what emerged in court, even though it wasn't illegal, was of a guy that was somebody that was completely sleazy. It was about a Canadian uh, broadcaster. But anyway, Baruma published it because he said it was interesting to consider, wasn't it, what happened to people's reputations in the midst of this? You know, you're, that guy had, had his reputation destroyed. Anyway, for commissioning and publishing that article, he was drummed out as the editor of a major publication. And one of the things that people said in relation to that was that there's a generation of 
young journalists and uh, young uh, thinkers who imagine that being educated is having the right suite of opinions. And I thought that was really true because a lot of people who tried to get Baruma sacked were fellow journalists and they succeeded. He was drummed out. And I think there is that kind of tick box suite of opinions. If you don't conform to this, you're drummed out. And it's often said to me, oh, you're just always defending the wrong kind of person. Um, what about, say, in universities, the prevent scheme, which is a government scheme which is used? And I think there's been a gross example recently of uh, at Reading University where Norman Duras, who is a major public intellectual of the left, was considered to to be, you know, almost inciting terrorism or taken off a book list. And there was kind of a massive discussion about it. Of course, I'm opposed to the prevent scheme. But I think you cannot prevent the prevent scheme unless you have a consistent approach to free speech. And that means defending Ian Baruma, Warwick Student Union Society, asking a, a, a difficult question on gender. Defending Steve Bannon being invited to speak at the Economist Conference. Whatever it is, you cannot pick and choose on this. And I think the way that people try and delegitimize those of us who are consistent on free speech, as Alistair says, even trying to get people sacked for simply having opinions that are unacceptable, I think it's something we've got to in 2019 really take seriously. And uh, I, I mean, I, I think just a lot of what we discussed uh, does seem to me to, to really reveal how the logic of what was going on in universities over over the past years has now expanded into mainstream society. So on journalism, I thought the the interesting thing earlier in the year was when Barry Weiss, the the, uh, New York Times commentator, uh, or editor of the comment section made a, a, a flippant tweet questioning uh, uh, about the immigration status of someone and that blew up into a whole argument uh, within the New York Times journalists and subsequently it was revealed internal machinations of how this all played out at the New York Times was revealed and it was it was basically the New York Times part of the journalists in there trying to create a safe space and, and, and saying that open opinion shouldn't be allowed at the New York Times. I mean, this is the New York Times, for God's sake. I I think free speech has has become increasingly important just now because it seems that all the time society seems to give out the message that uh, we're not capable of taking responsibility for ourselves, that we need experts to guide us. And I think that the really key thing about uh, free free speech just now, and, and freedom more generally in fact, is that we need to assert, I think, that we are capable of taking responsibility for ourselves. We are capable of thinking through uh, a situation and taking responsibility for what we say and for challenging what other people say if, if we think that we disagree with them. And I think it's, it's becoming increasingly important uh, that we assert uh, that responsibility, which, interesting enough, is, is what we do at uh, the Academy of Ideas Living Freedom School, which is going to take place next year for the third year in a row. It's going to be open to under-25s who are interested in, in the kind of history and philosophy, but also the contemporary debates around freedom. We'll be launching an open call for uh, people to apply for the school in the new year, so do keep an eye out for that.